you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you here with us today. Uh, It's good to see those of you who are online as well. And just know that whether you're in person, live, whether you're watching it live online or listening to the podcast later or watching the video feed later, uh, the sermon, we're just so grateful uh, that you would spend some time as we dive into God's word, as we come together and... um, See what God has for us through his word that we know and we believe that his word is living, it is active, it speaks to us today and we can learn if our eyes, ears, and hearts are ready to receive what he has for us. That I know that each and every one of you who are part of our service today or listening later, each and every one of you are here for a reason, that you are loved and that God wants to share something with you today. And so uh, before we enter into our passage, talk about our sermon title, uh, I would ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for what God has for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who is part of our service right now, Lord. I pray that uh, each person knows that they are deeply loved by you, uh, that they are prayed for, cared for, and loved I pray, God, that each person would um, have a moment, whether it was what just experienced with worship and singing, whether it's through the sermon, whether it's later on with a, a conversation. I pray that everyone who is a part of the service will have a moment in which they realize this is why they were part of the service today. So, God, I pray that as we seek you now, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. May I decrease. May you increase. God, we're grateful that you who are the God who is so big, more than we can even imagine, and yet you're so close uh, and you're so intimately um, near and dear to us. So Lord, we thank you for both your bigness and your closeness. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 3 in a few moments as we enter into this passage together. Last week, we spent some time in the sermon title last week was remembering who you are. And it was acknowledging the fact that we may have a different identity. We may learn what the world tells us who we are. And we may attribute the words, world's words as our truth. And yet, we are not who the world says we are. We are who God says we are, that we are deeply loved by the Father, that he molded and shaped and created each and every one of you. He breathed his life into each and every one of you, and each and every one of you has a purpose, has deep love by God, and has a reason that you are here today. And so I shared some of my issues, which isn't new. That's what I do every day. But um, I shared some of my struggles with feeling unwanted, or taking on the name of rejected, or feeling that burden of being a failed hero, and how God can mold and shape and remind me and us that those false names, those lies that we believed about ourselves are not who we are, but instead that we are loved, we're his children, that he is proud of us. There's nothing we could do to make him love us anymore. We can't earn it. There's nothing we could do to make him love us any less. We can't lose it. Why? Because his love is unconditional, without condition. Can he be disappointed in us? Yes, of course. Can he be saddened by our decision? Yes. But does he stop loving us? No. 
And so we want to see how is it that we can remember who we are. And then today, we're going to shift our focus not onto who we are in Christ and who we are in God, but remembering who God is. Because if God is the one who names us and the one who speaks truth into us, then it's important for us to remember who he is and why he is the only God who is able to save. He's the only one who's able to work in our lives. He's the only one that is worthy of our worship. So before we, we enter into the main point in the passage, I want to do a, a quick, um, just a moment together. So I want you to think, for those of you who already know and love Jesus and you, you follow him, if, if you're not there yet, we're so glad you're here. You're in a safe place. We don't expect you to, to interact or be a part of this moment, but um, we hope you're encouraged by this. But if for those of you who have known and loved Jesus, you have a relationship with him, I want to ask you to try to think back to when you first either believed in Jesus or heard about him, heard about who God was. And I want you to think about your understanding of God. Like it may be as simple if I just say, God is, and then we fill in the blank. Maybe it's as simple as God is love, right? Like when you were first coming to know Jesus, or you first understood how much God loved you, that's all, you're like, God is love. That's what it is. Maybe it's God is faithful, whatever it may be. I'm going to ask if there's a couple of you that might be willing to share just like a one-word answer of who God is and how you understood him at the very beginning of your walk with Jesus. Do some of you have an answer? God is what? I'm good enough. I'm good enough. I love that. Absolutely. Thank you. What else? Everywhere. God is everywhere. Absolutely. He's omnipresent is the, is the um, kind of that, that theological term for it. Wonderful. Thank you. What else? Omnipotent, all-powerful, right? Absolutely. What else? Loving. Loving. Amen. Thank you for that. God is with us. I heard that. And what was the one over here? He knows what's best for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so when we start off, thank you all for sharing. And if you shared, remember, remember your answer. I may just ask it to have, hear from you again. But remember this idea of... When we first knew about God, when we first found out about God, what did we think of him? We didn't need to know all the theological like definitions and all the different things. We just knew, man, God is with us. Or we just knew that God is faithful, that he's loving. We don't know everything about everything, but we know he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. We know he's all-knowing. We know he's all-powerful. I remember one of the, there were two songs that before I even followed Jesus, there were two songs that when I was attending worship services, I was curious about God, uh, starting to seek after him. But before I gave my life to him, there were two songs that I remember being just these pivotal songs. One was Open the Eyes of My Heart. Um, and I remember thinking of that and just at, having that be a prayer. And then the very first song that I actually stood up for and sang out loud, because I, I was a you know, I would stand up and there'd be a time of worship and like, I didn't really get like the hand raising thing. I didn't really get like the, like, why are people lifting up their hands and all those stuff, different stuff? Why are people clapping? And then I didn't realize why do I don't have the rhythm to clap with them. So, you know, just little things. But recognizing that one of the first songs that I actually stood up for, didn't clap, but sang with was enough. So all of you is more than enough for all of me. And I remember just these moments, even before I knew who Jesus was, or I even had a relationship with him, those two songs have imprinted themselves 19 years ago. I still remember 
singing those songs. Because I didn't know everything. I didn't have a master's yet. I didn't have undergrad, but I knew those things. I knew that I wanted God to open the eyes of my heart, whoever he, whatever it looked like. I wanted to learn more about him. And I knew that if I truly believed in him, that all of who he is would be enough. And it's amazing how we can grasp things theologically or, or experientially or when it comes to God, we can grasp them early on. Like a childlike faith. And yet when the winds and the waves hit us, we lose sight of fixing our eyes on Jesus. When we pursue God and then things get really tough and we don't know why, we can allow that to take our eyes off of God, off of the one that we know is enough for us, off of the one that we know is loving and just and all-powerful and all the things that you shared that wants what's best for us and knows what's best for us. We can take our eyes off of that and then we can settle for a facsimile, a, a false idol or a false God that the world would promote to say, hey, this is who you can worship. This is what can give you hope in your identity. This is what can give you value. And if you pursue this, then you can receive your purpose. And yet, we recognize that, that we, anything that we follow or worship other than God is going to fall short because friends, we all have our hurts, we have our hangups, our habits, our wounds, our heartaches. We all have these things that we struggle with and there's gaps and chasms and holes in our souls that we want to place and put something instead of. We say, okay, if I could just get the approval of people, that will allow that gap in my heart to be filled. Or if I could just get enough stuff, that will help me feel like I have value because I own valuable things. Or if I can just be perfect or get good grades or go to the right school or live in the right neighborhood, whatever it is, we may pursue things. If we could just get this, then I'll be okay. But friends, if, we, if that this is anything other than a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, even if it's a good thing, then we're going to have issues where we fall short and we get moments of brokenness. And I, and I mean this in speaking truth in love that God reserves the right to take things that maybe we've made idols and to remove them from our lives so we can fix our eyes on him. That I shared uh, before that when Steph and I started dating, she was my idol. She was the one that if she was okay with me, I was okay. So God called her to break up with me. And we were broken up for a while, about 11 months. But it was through that process that God broke down my idols and helped me to fix my eyes on him. It was through that process that I started singing, all of you is more than enough for all of me. So I'm going to share the main point for today. And the main point for today is the main point that we had uh, in a sermon four years ago. So uh, I'm saying that for those of you who remember those sorts of things. I recognize I've done it before. For those of you who don't, just pretend like you smile and nod like you did. So um, our main point today is this idea that everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. Everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. Now, let me start off right off the bat. When I refer earlier to worship, many of us will automatically go to when we're singing songs in the beginning of a service. 
That that is, our, that is what we commonly or, or often will refer to what worship is. It's, it's those songs that we sing. It's the, it's the 15 minutes in the beginning of a service where we sing. It's going to a worship concert means a concert where they are lifting up the name of Jesus and they're worshiping him. And so is that worship? Yes, absolutely. But is that the full accumulation of worship? Are we only worshiping God when we're singing songs for 15 minutes at the beginning of a service? Or is worship encapsulate all of our lives? And is worship what we do, not just Sunday morning for an hour, but Monday through Saturday? Does God only get one out of the 168 hours in a week? Or do we give him more? See, everyone worships something. Let's unpack this a little bit together. Because Tim Hughes, who's a worship leader uh, in the Worship Project, he talks about this. He says, the English word worship comes from the Anglo-Saxon worth Skype, which literally means to ascribe worth to something. So you see the, the etymology, you see worth and worship, you see how they could come from a similar root word there. Those things that we value, admire, love, and enjoy most are by definition objects of our affection. And so... The things that we spend the most time doing is a great indicator of the things that we are ascribing value to. And if those, any of those things become our main thing, then we are worshiping or we are responding more to them over anything else. So for some of us, maybe it's the idea of wanting to have money. We've talked about that. We want to have more stuff. And so we may ask God to give us more money. So we're asking God to really fulfill the idol that we are pursuing most. Maybe it's a relationship. If you're in a relationship or you want to be in a relationship, I've felt this when I was in high school, right? It's God, just give me, give me someone to love me and who will love, who I can love back. And we think, oh, if I could just have that. But oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes what we ask God to give us, there's an indicator of what could be tempting to be an idol for us. Because if we're asking God for anything other than him, it can show us where our hearts might be aligned to where we might fall into worshiping the wrong things. Because we can worship, we can, we can ascribe value to good things. But anything that we, even good or bad, anything that we try to make the main thing is the wrong thing. Unless if it's Jesus. Everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. Chris Hughes, who wrote The Daniel Dilemma, uh, a book that we're going to be looking at a little bit later today, he says it this way, that worship is our response to what we value most. So when we, you know, I, I really enjoy being able to uh, watch Disney Plus and be able to like relax at the end of a night. And so how do we respond when our streaming service freezes? And you're like, oh man, like, why isn't it working? You know, how do we respond when the person that we want to get approval from doesn't text us back or respond to us? How do we respond when difficulties arise, when things are taken away, how do we respond when we've placed so much value in something else? Because 
You may be sitting here and, or watching online or listening online, and if you're not here yet in a relationship with God, and you're, you're listening, and you're, you're here, you're, maybe you're curious, maybe you just got it, you just came for the day, and that's wonderful. We're so glad that you're with us today, but you might say, I don't worship anything, because I don't believe in God, in any God. And what I would, what I would encourage is to remember, request, or to ask, what is it that you place the greatest value of in your life? Because friends, all of us have ingrained in the fiber of our souls the desire to worship something that is bigger than ourselves. That God has placed eternity in our hearts. And as C.S. Lewis says, if we have a, a drive for food and hunger, then there must be food that would fulfill it. If we have a drive for thirst and there's drink, then there's something that will fulfill it. If we have a drive or a hunger or a thirst for eternity, then there must be something that will fulfill it, and someone more specifically. See, all of us have this within us. Even pagan cultures from all of history know that there is idols, there are gods or goddesses that they would worship. That they would seek and say, okay, this is what we do. Now, some of them were made by human hands. There were statues that pointed to a representation of a god or a goddess. But everyone ingrained in our souls, we want to give value to something bigger than ourselves. So everyone worships something. But who we worship is everything. It shapes our entire lives. So I want to bring us back to Daniel chapter 3. This is where we're going to be for uh, reading our passage today. Because in Daniel chapter 3, last week we were introduced to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We were introduced to them about the fact that their names got changed when they first got to Babylon. Because the Babylonians, when they would exile people or take people, they would change their names and identity. They would change their language, change the literature of what they're reading, change what they studied. And they took the best of the best and trained them to follow along in their way of life and their mindset. In so doing, cutting off the legs of the godly culture that were the Jewish people. And so now we start to see that in Daniel chapter 2, there was a dream that Daniel interpreted. So Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were continuing to be elevated or looked upon favorably by King Nebuchadnezzar. And yet here, in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds up a 90-foot golden statue. And he says that whenever anyone hears the music, they're to bow down and worship this image. That was 90 feet tall, made of gold, in the middle of this plain, this open field. And the idea was everyone would come together and everyone would hear the music and everyone better bow. Here's how it's said in verse 4. The herald loudly proclaimed, nations of peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horns, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Excuse me, image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So King Nebuchadnezzar knew that if you have a bunch of people from different languages, different nations, one way to unite them is giving them the same language. 
One way you unite them is to help them all to learn the same books, the same educational system. And one way you unite them is to have them all worship and bow down to the same God. That religion would be a way for them to, him to get control of the people. And so it's ingrained in all of us to worship something. But the second part of our main point is that who we worship is everything. And so we're going to look here. We're going to take a look at the idols who can't save us. The idols that are incapable of providing the hope, the purpose, the salvation, the love, the value that we so desperately seek. There are things that were pursued back then, things that you and I still pursue today that cannot save. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew this. They knew they were not going to bow down to the statue of gold. Now, some people may ask, how come Daniel wasn't mentioned as one who stood up? And did he not, you know, was he there and did he bow down? No, we know Daniel, and we'll see next week in chapter 6 that Daniel stands firm no matter what. And so he, the, the, it's one of those where we look at, we say he must have been out amongst the country somewhere else, that he was not present because we know who he is. And if he, as we saw last week, wouldn't eat certain foods, as we'll see next week, he'll pray even when the, he was told not to. If he did those things at the risk of his life, we know he would have stood firm in this story as well. He just wasn't present. But who was present was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we're not going to read every single verse in this passage, but I'm going to summarize verses 8 through 12 in which there are people who saw, the astrologers saw, and they came down and they tore down the Jewish people. And he said, listen, you told everyone to bow down when they heard the music, and yet there are three of your officials, people that you've set up over affairs of Babylon. So these are your leaders, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in your inner circle, and they didn't bow down. They tell on them, and then Nebuchadnezzar as verse 13 says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship this image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Hear the, hear the, the pride in his voice. Hear the, hear the fact that he's like, no, if, if, if I can't, there's no God that can stop what I want to do. No God can tell me how to live. No God can tell me what's going to happen. He says, nothing can save you from my hand. And yet we, still, we know throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, how God extends his right hand and he's, he's, we are saved by the power of his hand. And yet, think about this. In Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, in his perspective, he's right. Why? Because if God, if the God of the Jewish people was truly as powerful and loving and caring as they thought he was, well then surely they, he would not have allowed the Babylonians to take them over. In his mind, he thinks the gods that I follow, the idols I follow, must be greater than all the gods of, and goddesses of all the other countries that I have taken over. 
It's about what I believe, what I think. I'm the one on the throne. Therefore, no God can stand up to me. And in his perspective, he would have thought himself to be right. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know better. They recognize that these idols, that this gold image or any of the idols, again, they've been inside the Babylonian uh, grad school learning program for years at this point. And they're realizing, listen, we're learning about all these different other gods and goddesses. We're learning about astrology. We're learning what the education is telling me to learn, but we know the truth. We know that none of these other idols can save us. Here's how they put it in verse 16 through 18, which is a beautiful declaration of faith in God in the midst of trial. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver. So what did, what did Nebuchadnezzar ask in verse 15? What God will be able to rescue you? They de declaratively describe that God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. There's no idol that would cause Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down. That in a world that forces and tries to compromise or create a, a compromised faith, they would not do it. They learned how to love well to stand firm in a bow down world. Think about this. Were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the only three exiled Jewish people who were in that big field? Or is it possible, or do we know? It's not even possible. We know this to be true. There were others there. And perhaps, perhaps they thought to themselves, God, you know my heart. You know that I don't really bow down to this image of gold, but, but in order to not create waves or to cause issues, I'll, I'll bow down, but you have my heart, even if this gold image has my prostration to before them. That maybe we compromise by saying, God, you know my heart. You know that I don't want to do things in work that are going to cause me to break my integrity. Or I don't want to have issues at school that are cause me to, to ruin my witness or whatever it is. But, so God, you know my heart, but I'm going to do this. But you know between you and me that, that I don't really mean it. Can we be a witness in a bow down world if we're bowing down next to them? Or to someone who's looking at the, the whole countryside at that time in the field say, everyone looks the same to me. By how we live, those of us who know and love Jesus, by how we live Monday through Saturday, would the world say that we look just the same as everybody else? Are we compromising in ways that we say, God, you know my heart. You know I don't really mean any of this, but... I'm going to do it because I don't want to ruffle feathers. I don't want to stand out. So forgive me in advance for what I'm about to do. Are we willing to sacrifice and lay down and bow down before idols? Even when we know they can't save. Timothy Keller in Counterfeit Gods, he gives a further, uh, more complete definition of an idol. 
He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. That if when I was dating Steph and I would say, if I could just get her to love me, I'll have value. Was I literally bowing down before her in worship? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Of course not. But was my heart bowed down to her above all others? Yeah, it was. Did God need to remove that? So that instead of bowing down to anything or anyone other than him, I would stand firm for only him? Yes. But whatever it is, if you say, if I just had this, I'll be okay, is an incredible indicator of what your and my idol may be. Now, I mentioned Chris Hodges wrote The Daniel Dilemma. In this chapter, when he talks about Daniel chapter 3, he points to three of the most common gods and goddesses or, or um, idols that were in the Bible and mentioned specifically in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament a bit. So what I want to do is I want to look at what he deems, what he calls the unholy trinity because we may recognize the names of these different gods and goddesses. Maybe we won't, but I can guarantee that we can still see the pull of the desire of temptation that they still offer us thousands of years later, still offer us today. So the first one is the idea of mammon. Mammon is a way of, is, is the spirit that talks about possessions and money. We hear Jesus draw the line in Matthew 6. He says, you cannot serve both God, and most of our translations will say God and money, but the actual translation is between God and mammon, between the spirit of money and possessions and having more stuff. You either love one and reject the other or follow one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. Is it okay to have money? Yes. Is it okay to have possessions? Yes. It's okay to own these money and possessions as long as money and possessions don't own you. That as a previous pastor showed me before, talked about before, you don't see a hearse with a U-Haul attached at the end of it. We can't take this stuff with us. It's acknowledging that this constant, consistent desire for more things, money, possessions, that's something that still drives us to this day. For some of us, it's why we work extra hours. It's why we fall into workaholism because we want to make enough money to provide for our family. And yet, what good is it to gain all the money in the world and to lose your family in the process? We do in order to say, if I can have enough money, then I can have enough security. So then whatever befalls me in my life, I'll be able to financially be able to be okay. Therefore, I will be okay. And yet we see in Luke chapter 12, the story of the guy who wants to build bigger barns. And because he puts all of his attention in building more stuff, a bigger barn for his stuff, a bigger garage for all of his toys, his very life was taken and that night and it realized that we can't take this with us. But that drive for more money and possessions is one that we still experience today. Number two is the, is the one of Baal or Baal that is power and pride. It's the God that 
we most often see in direct contrast to Yahweh, to the one true God. It's the one that you see in 1 Kings 18 when it was the Baal prophets, 450 of them that were on Mount Carmel and there was a showdown between Baal and between Yahweh. It's the one where the Baal prophets tried to get the lightning God of Baal, the powerful God, to be able to cause a fire, to light that fire. And yet Elijah just mocks them and he laughs at them and he puts 12 buckets of water over his pile of wood to show that God will still do it. And he says, he calls out to Yahweh, the one true God, and he lights the fire. It's this direct idea of we want to be in power and in control of our lives. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we want to be on the throne. We want to be the ones who have enough power to dictate right, wrong, what's good for us and what's not. We think that our perspective, if we're not careful and if we don't have the word of God and the spirit of God in us, we will think that what we decide is right is right. It's a moral relativism that is permeating our world. That says, you have your truth, I have my truth. Don't tell me how to live my life because I'm the one on the throne. I can determine what's right or wrong and what's true and not true. And yet, that thirst for power only brings ruin. Now, whenever we watch, um, like when the girls were watching movies, it's like, they'd ask, like, why do the, vill you know, why do the bad guys do that? I'm like, oh, they want power. You could almost summarize or, or boil down most of the movies you've seen and most of the time what the villain is doing is they're doing so out of wanting more power. Maybe it's they want to get more money to have more power, but the ultimate idea is to sit on the throne. Like Scar and Lion King, they'd rather be the king of a decrepit and broken world rather than to be a servant in a good one. Why? Because we want power. We may live this out by wanting to step over people and tear people down so that we could be in charge. We may want to be the leaders of our classroom and mock people and bully people so that we can feel better about ourselves and lower them. We could do this in the workplace. We can do this all around where we want power. We wouldn't say it that way. We might say we want influence to help. But influence to help can be the positive side of the coin that can be a desire for power if we're not careful. Number three, mammon, the possessions and money, Baal, the, uh, the power, and then we have Asherah or Ashtoreth, which is pleasure. It's the idea of if it feels good, do it. It's saying, don't, you don't have to tell me how to live my life because if you just do you and I'll do me and if something feels good to me, then you can't tell me that it's wrong. It's a culture that permeates short-term thinking and sensuous living over living self-sacrificially and loving someone selflessly. Notice in 1 Corinthians 13 when it talks about love is patient, love is kind, love is not self-seeking, love does not envy, love does not boast. When we pursue the idea of pleasure or an Asherah or Ashtoreth, when we pursue pleasure or sensual pleasure or sex, any of these things outside of God's design for it, we're pursuing the opposite of the love that God talks about. Because if love is not self-seeking, lust is is the definition of self-seeking. It's wanting pleasure for ourselves rather than serving someone else. Lust boasts. Lust is envious. 
Lust keeps a record of wrongs. Love doesn't. So when we pursue pleasure, and we say, this feels good, I'm going to keep doing it, then we're looking at an idol that we think will give us the ultimate happiness. But when we feel good in the evening, we feel, they feel awful the rest of the week. And it's recognizing that these short-term, these, these momentary moments of whatever give way to the emptiness when we fall and we look at the wrong idol. Chris Hodges, he continues on, he says, these false gods, money, power, and sex, have been warring against our relationship with the living God from the beginning. That from the very beginning, these three have been part of the enemy's arsenal for coming after God's people that would wedge a gap into the relationship between God and people. Genesis 3 verse 6, this is when Eve, excuse me, has the moment where she decides to take the, the forbidden fruit. It says that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. That Eve fell into temptation, but Adam as her husband didn't step up and stand up either. And so both of them are at fault. We can't blame Eve without recognizing Adam's complicit nature in that. But with that said, Chris Hodges, he, he looks at those three of money, power, and sex, and he looks at how those three can even play a role in the initial temptation. So this is his emphasis added when it comes to the same passage. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, which points to mammon's greed, the possession, the wanting more, it's having more stuff, and pleasing to the eye, which appeals to Asherah's desire for pleasure. Oh, this looks good. I want it. I have greed. It looks good. I covet. And then desirable for gaining wisdom, which is Baal's emphasis on self-empowerment. That if I do this, I will be better. I will be like God. I will be able to determine right and wrong. It's pride. So greed, envy, pride from the very beginning are three of the tools the enemy uses to divide and to separate God from the union with the people that we've always meant to have with him. And yet, Alexis de Tocqueville puts it this way. The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. People who have all the money in the world can still be some of the most miserable. People who have all the power in the world rule over people and they see how decrepit the world is around them. And they think that power makes them happy, but power makes them empty. People who pursue relationships and be able to say, oh, sex is the most important thing and live outside of God's design for what marriage and sex is. There's still a brokenness there. Why? Because we're all broken. And yet, when we know and love Christ, we recognize that our brokenness does not mean the end of God's love for us. It's the beginning of our understanding of who God is. That God is loving. He knows what's best for us. That in him we are more than enough. That he's omnipresent, omniscient, 
that he loves us. So we've looked at everyone worships something, but who we worship is everything. So we looked at the idols who we shouldn't worship because they can't save. Now let's close in the last few minutes with the God who can save. The God who can rescue. In this moment, we'll jump ahead in the story a little bit that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they declaratively say, no matter what happens, even if God does not respond the way we want him to, we will not bow down to your gold image that you've created. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He has the oven put seven times hotter than usual. And he does it so quickly that he just has them thrown in. And the guards that bring him to the doorway of the oven end up dying from the flames and the heat of the flames. And so they're dying. They're on the side. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire. And as they're in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 25, is shocked. He talks to his people and he says, he talks about how they're, did I not have Three people that were sent in the fire? And the advisors say, yes, you did, certainly. Well, I see a fourth in there. And he's walking, he looks like a son of the angels. Or son of the gods, I should say. And he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come here, come back. And he brings them out of the fire. And he, there's no, their, their hairs weren't singed. There's no, like, fire or smoke on their clothes. In fact, they didn't even smell like fire, which if you've ever been to a bonfire, that's a miracle of and of itself because of how much and strong the smell of smoke is. Nothing was changed about how they didn't have any burns, any marks. And this is how Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the peoples of any nations or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. Why? For no other God can save in this way. We all, everyone worships something. But even this pagan emperor who, or king who wanted to be in charge, sit on the throne, even he realized there's a God who can save. It's the most high God. A, a title that implies that he still thinks there's other gods or he's aware that there's other gods or goddesses that people would worship. But the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's the most high God. Timothy Keller says this, the only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods or idols is to turn back to the true one. The living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. So we started this off with listing out some of the things of who God is that we remember thinking in the very beginning. If you, if you shared earlier, what was that? God is, fill in some of the blanks. What did you say earlier? Loving. Loving. What else? Knows what's, Knows what's best for me. Yep. He's everywhere. Faithful. Faithful. He's all-knowing. Powerful. All-powerful. With us. With us. We remember those things. May we be reminded of those things today. Why? 
Because what does this passage show us? Who's God? He's a God who loves us. That he knows us, he calls us by name. He's a God who is with us in the fire. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. Do you know the one difference between when the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fire and then they left? Their clothes were the same. There was no singed hair. They didn't even smell of smoke. You know what was different? They were walking around unbound and unharmed. That the fire was where they were set free from their shackles. The fire and the trial of the fire is when they were set free in order to walk freely in Christ. God loves us. He's with us in the fire. He sets us free. And he's the only God who can save us. And when we recognize we meet that God, we know that those gaps, those wounds, those hearts, uh, holes in our heart, money's not going to fill that gap. Pleasure's not going to fulfill that gap. Power's not going to fulfill that gap. That gap can only be filled by relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's a cross-filled gap that only Jesus can bridge. Why? Because Jesus loves us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the one who sets us free, and he's the only one true God who can save. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for each person who is with us today. And God, I pray that, again, there was some moment that each and every one of them felt from the power of your Holy Spirit just a moment of, this is what I need to work on. This is what I need to pray through. God, this is how you spoke to me. Because God, you alone are the one who can speak to your children in a way that they can understand far greater than any preacher could. So Lord, I pray that you are continuing to work and continuing to speak and continuing to remind us that in the fire, you are with us. In the storm, you're holding back the sea. God, that whenever we need to be reminded of who you are, we can remember the cross and the love that you have for us. And so we give you all honor, glory, praise, and worship right now, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do. Share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.